Um, <clears throat> as I uh, think about things, the, uh, there are multiple ways that a sermon or a message can play itself out or be perceived. And sometimes um, it can be what you would maybe call a truth transfer or an information dump. Sometimes I think I teach that way a lot of times where I just want you to get data. I want you to understand facts about the Bible. And then maybe the other uh, end of a spectrum might be a highly motivational sermon, you know, something that touches your heart and makes you want to go out and, and change the world for Jesus. And so there's... Um, you know, at one extreme, a cold fact dump, and on the other extreme, an emotional appeal that both can be good and both have their place. But um, today, I'm afraid that you'll perceive this as an information dump, and that's partly because I've organized the material as carefully as I can to give you as many handles on the material so that you understand it and take it home in your mind. And for us to understand the Bible better is a good thing, right? I mean, it's not all bad. If the worst that happened is you get a really good information dump and you understand 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 a little better, that would be really good. Amen? But I want you to see that there is more going on than just the information dump. There's, some, there's two very specific things that we need to understand. Um, in my other line of work, I'm a systems analyst, computer programmer, software engineer, whatever you want to call it, a propeller head. And um, in that world, I, I build up systems, and uh, we try to improve things, and how can this help that? And we try to work it together so that everything makes sense and everything works well, and the people who are doing the growing of the plants are connected to the people that take care of the plants, are connected to the people that sell the plants, that keep connected to the people that ship the plants. I work for a plant company. And so um, you know, everything's integrated in a system, and, it, it, and you want it to be more and more and more sophisticated. And it's kind of cool because it really works really well when it is. And that is our tendency as human beings to kind of make um, complex and elaborate systems. And if you were going to give me the task of designing the way that all people could be saved and reconcile to God, I would come up with a pretty elaborate and complex system. I think that's where I would probably go naturally. And yet, the truth is almost exactly the opposite, right? It's a simple, strange, and bizarre thing that God does, and that's have Jesus die on the cross. And it's surprising by itself. When we're so familiar with it because we're churchy and we've been around this, and we, but it, it's really an odd thing. It's profoundly simple and powerful. And that's what I would want us to understand today, that it's not an elaborate system. It's not that. It's the wisdom of God. And so let's read the text this morning from 1 Corinthians, and we'll pick up a little bit from where we left off last week. You recall that Paul... Um, was a dealing with, there were people in Corinth that were arguing with one another about who was the coolest human leader to follow. And, and uh, Paul makes the point, no, you need to follow Jesus, not human leaders, not Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. And so he picks up again, and we'll start there at 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom 
and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah the prophet, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God speaking, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, or since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to bring or to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that, Your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Father, help us to understand where the power is and where it isn't. And may we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our world today, I think there's, if you're an unbeliever, today, one of the challenges for unbelievers, especially in our uh, hyper-scientific naturalism world, one of the hardest parts for a believer, if an unbeliever, if I was still an unbeliever, the hard part for me would be to overcome the silliness of this whole religion thing. It seems so uh, unscientific, so bizarre. How could some person's death 2,000 years ago be applied in any kind of tangible way to my life? 
And so there's a foolishness about the cross, and I understand that. And I, I hope that today you'll see something maybe about your own thinking, your own wisdom about these things that would betray that you're thinking in a more complex and wrong way than you should. But then as a believer, I also want to encourage you that that world around us, as has been mentioned this morning already, the, the world that's dark doesn't accept the message of the cross. Does, it, it views us as foolish and strange. And we need to not try to fix it and tie a bow around it and make ourselves more confident by our eloquence or how cool we can present it, but we need to remind ourselves where the power lies and not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And so I have a series of notes that I want us to go through carefully to make sure we get the content, and let's make sure we understand it as we go. So the first point I wanted to make that I see in the text here is the cross is foolish and weak, right? That's what Paul is saying. The cross looks foolish and weak. I, I keep wanting to say it looks or appears because I know better, but that's because of God's grace in my life why I know better. Because really, the cross is foolish and weak on the face value. Look what he says again back in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Here you are rejecting God. You're his enemy. You're trapped in your sin still. You are affected and your thinking is distorted and darkened. And so you're perishing. And this message of the cross is foolishness to you. I understand that. That's exactly what it is. It's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. When you understand what's going on, it changes everything and you're saved. But, but if you're an unbeliever, it, it is foolish. Then look at this passage also. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So this is a pretty interesting thing. Um, in history here, Paul would have been raised a Jew, and you understand that the Old Testament is largely the Jewish people, right? It's the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, they're the ones that God has called, and so they're the, they would consider themselves the inside track, right? They're the religious ones. And then those who are outside would be Gentiles or dogs or the nations. They're really viewed low by the, the Jewish people. And, and so the Jews demand a sign. So what they wanted when Jesus came, they wanted a sign. That many times in the New Testament, it's kind of interesting if you just go through and underline the number of times you see the word sign, Many times the Jews would go to Jesus and say, hey, show us a sign. I mean, he would do something miraculous, like heal a person or, or raise a dead person or feed 5,000 people. Those were signs. And yet they would say, show us a sign to show that you have the authority to do this. It's just so ironic. He, how many more miraculous signs does he have to show before they catch on that I mean, even Nicodemus, who later becomes a believer, but Nicodemus is one of the leaders, and he comes to Jesus by night, and he says, we know that you must come from God because of all the things you're doing. So he was doing signs that were clear. But they keep looking for a sign, and Jesus gives a sign, and it's not enough, and it's not enough. Because they want, I don't know, an excuse not to believe. And so they keep wanting a bigger sign, a more positive, prove it to me, prove it to me, prove it to me. And yet, the proof is there. It's just a hard heart that won't listen. And so Jews demand signs. And what does Jesus say? So it's a wicked and adulterous generation. It's an unfaithful way to look at God. For you to keep asking for proof when God himself has told you with his words 
That's an insult to God. And Jesus says, there is one sign that will be given. That's the sign of Jonah, which is a strange sign to think of, really. It's the sign of a person who's in the belly of a whale for three days and gets spit out on dry ground. And nobody understood what the sign of Jonah was. And yet Jesus makes it clear, and we find out from the rest of the Bible, that that was a sign of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried in the ground, and then being raised from the dead on the third day. Kind of funny to think of the ground spitting Jesus out, but it had no power to hold him any more than the whale did or the fish did with Jonah. So God, Jesus raised from dead. So Jesus does give them a sign. But then Jesus also says, I want you to understand something. The people of Nineveh, that's the people that Jonah went to and told them the story about God going to judge them. He says, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up on the judgment day and condemn you. You who are standing here looking at me, Jesus is saying. Because they believed Jonah and repented. And you are looking at me. I am the Son of God. I am the one who does these signs. And you still, not, you still will not repent. And so the people of Jonah's day are going to be witnesses against the hard-heartedness of people who refuse to listen to God about Jesus. So Jews demand a sign. And then the Greeks, of course, look for wisdom. Sophia, the Greek philosophers, the sophisticates, the sophisticated ones. And they want wisdom. They want everything polished and shiny and systematic and, and clear and, and elevate. And it's, it's an arrogant pride. I don't need God to tell me how it all works. I have my system. I figured it all out. And I can make it all work. And I have my philosophy. I will make it work. I and worthy. And those things are a stumbling block. Why is, the, why is the cross a stumbling block to Jews? Well, a stumbling block is a truth that you just can't get past it, right? I, I want to go to believe in Jesus, but I just this one thing keeps getting in the way. This one thing causes me to stumble. And the thing that's a stumbling block to the Jews is that their Messiah, if he's the Messiah, how did he hang on a tree? Because the Bible, their book, their testimony, their Old Testament, the Scripture said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so it's a stumbling about how could Jesus be a Savior? How could he be my Messiah if he got cursed like that? And they can't get over it. And they don't understand that that's exactly on purpose what God did. Is he had Jesus become the curse for sin to pay the penalty for sin as a perfect sacrifice and be able to purchase salvation. So the very thing, ironically, the very thing that's the stumbling block is the key to the whole thing. It's the key to understanding God and being saved. I wonder how many times in our, our minds, how many times they say, well, there's, I like all this stuff about Jesus, but there's this one thing I don't like. I don't like this, or I don't like that. I wonder how many times those things happen where we have a stumbling block and we refuse. All right, so <clears throat> Jews... Man, okay, the stumbling block part was that Jesus is a curse, and that was a stumbling block. It would be hard to understand. But then the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's just so stupid. It's so crass. It doesn't have any meaning. So those are our observation. Um, I think we got to get the focus back on the PowerPoint. There we go. So just to recap, the cross is, the cross is foolish and weak, uh, it's a stumbling block or foolishness or both. And so, I, again, I would pray that you would not find 
that you would not have your own perception of what has to be true before you believe, your, your stumbling block, or some level of sophistication. I hope it's not blocking you from understanding this power of God. Okay, so that's the first point. The second one is we ourselves here are not much either, right? We're not all that cool either. Look at this. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many. Didn't say not all. Some of us were wise by human standards. Some of us have PhDs, I suppose, right? But not many. Most of us are not. Not many are influential. How many of us are really powerful? Not many. Actually, the church is full of inconsequential people, really. And then not many were of noble birth. How many, any, any uh, royalty in our midst here? Oh, you should have all raised your hand, right? Because they're Jesus' siblings, right? Well, that's okay. We're, we're, but I, you know what I meant. I knew what you meant. We're not no, noble birth by the earth standards, right? And so uh, that's true. And that, but look, at God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So how's that? God says you're foolish. He, God says you're a foolish thing. He chose us. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So God chose us, the weak things. That's what the world thinks we are. And we are in some ways. So we're not much either, right? We're not wise by human standards. We're not influential by human standards. And we're not of noble birth. We're not uh, privileged. We didn't get born with a silver spoon in our mouth or whatever, right? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What if, what if you had to be this in order for Jesus to love you? Wouldn't that be awful? Well, my pedigree is pretty good, but not as good. Well, is it good enough? Wait a minute, I'm only a secondary, I'm a third generation. Wait a minute, is my blood pure blood? Or my... What if it depended on all this stuff? Do you see how foolish in God's eyes, how foolish it is to think that by my bloodline, I would merit something by my race, my family heritage, or by my ability to influence? I mean, what a heavy burden that would be if we were all competing for who would be the most influential and only the top 10% get to go. How awful. And so it's good, but it's also important for us to remember, we are not here because God needed us on his team. Like, we're so great. We need to never, ever, ever forget that. The only reason we're so great at all is because God placed his love on us. That's it. We didn't bring anything to the table. We're not, we're not all that. So that's important. We're not much either, okay? The third thing I want to observe here is that God is foolish and weak. Now, that's really hard for me to say. I wanted to change that several times. I want to say God appears foolish and weak, right? Because he's really not. But this is exactly the, the ideology, the wording of our, of our lost world is they really believe, they say God is dead, God is foolish, God is weak. You need a crutch. Stand up and be a man's man. You don't need to have all these helps. Only weak people need to bend their knee and defer and listen to some authority from somebody else. I am my own boss. I know what I want. I know I have my rights. I can self-actualize. I will assert myself. What really matters is whether I get mine and whether I'm happy. That's all that matters. My personal happiness. 
God is foolish. God's weak. I want my power. And that's the way we look at things. Look at the verses. But God says, hey, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'm going to frustrate it. I wonder in some ways how that's manifested. Have you thought about that? Is it only at the last day that God's going to say, okay, Mr. Wise Man, Mr. Sophisticated Secular Atheist, you know, or whatever, and uh, show me your stuff, and he's going to stand before you almighty naked and afraid, and I haven't got anything to say. But I wonder sometimes how much, even in this life, the intelligence of the intelligent is frustrated. This self-contradictory nature, of a person who understands medical biology stuff, a doctor, and studies and studies and studies the formation of a baby in the womb and the incredible way that from two from one cell to two cells to four to billions and the specialization at the beginning they're all the same and within a few weeks some have already specialized and become heart and bone and nerve tissue and this incredible weaving together and to, and to study all that and to understand it thoroughly and then look for, now how can I prove evolution through that? How, and just to just turn into a, you have to leap and to think that somehow time and chance, neither of which are things, they're just measurements, how those could cause this to happen. It's an uncausable cause without a cause. The intelligence of the intelligence is frustrated. I, I wonder how many times those who have penned the descriptions of the bones in the museum or in the history books and the science books, how those words are going to be held to their account for saying such foolish things. But again, it depends on your perspective, I understand. Where is the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? All these sophisticated people. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So if you have your mighty, complex system, you think God is foolish, he's not. For the foolishness of God is wiser than wisdom. So even God in his most foolish foolishness, which can't be, right? Even if you think he's foolish, his foolishness is way wiser than your wisest wisdom, right? Because he's the creator. He self-exists. Nobody said, let there be God. God was and is and always was self-existent, completely different kind of being, a different order of being, self-existent. And everything else we know is caused by him. We are in the creation, and he stands alone as creator. And so he's wiser than the human wisdom. And the weakness of God, God's weakest moment, is stronger than human strength. What is God's weakest moment? What looks like it? Jesus on the cross. He could, he could have called 10,000 angels, the song says. But he weakened himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And he willfully laid down his life. He even said while he's said, nobody can take my life from me. I give it up willingly. And Jesus lays down his life. And everybody, all of his enemies rejoice. And Satan thinks he's got victory. And everything's, the, the, um, the forces of evil think they have prevailed. And yet they have totally been destroyed. God promised Eve, the serpent, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. And Jesus is bruised, he willingly lets happen, but his heel crushes the serpent's head. And so God's stronger than human strength. Amen? 
So I had to change it. God appears foolish and weak, but he's going to destroy and frustrate human wisdom and strength. God's going to make God's going to make human wisdom look foolish, and he's wiser and stronger than human wisdom and strength. Amen. That's, we know these things to be true, and it's important for us to understand it. When we start getting weak in the knees or, or afraid, we need to understand where the strength comes from. Okay, so here's another point. Why does God do it this way? I, I wish he wouldn't do it. I sort of wish he would use power and influence and, and, I don't know, why does God do it this way? And there's a couple of reasons from the text. First of all, Christ did not send me to baptize at the first one, but but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So one of the reasons that God does it this way is so that the cross won't be emptied of its power. Now, is the cross just a system? Is it just a game? Is it just another argument? No. The cross really is the power of God. It's not just a formula or a design or an idea or a way of looking at it. It's really true that the cross is the power place. And why, why would I say, why is that so? Why does the Bible say that? We need to understand what our biggest problem is. What is my problem? Sickness? Not really. Death? Yeah. I don't like it, but that, what's my problem? My problem is is that I'm a sinner in conflict with the holy God. And God's holy character demands death and eternal death as a consequence for that. And so there's only one remedy to turn that around. And that's God's justice has to be satiated. God can't just wink at sin. He's perfect and holy. He can't just let it go. He has to punish. And he loves us so much that he sends Jesus to take the punishment. And Jesus loves us so much that he willingly obeys and undergoes our punishment. And the Spirit loves us so much that if we believe, he'll apply the benefits to our lives. And so it is the power of God because it solves my problem. I'm not a sinner in Christ anymore. All my sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Amen? My sins are forgiven. Look at this verse, for since the wisdom of God, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Why does God do it this way? Because God was pleased. It pleases God that through the foolishness of what was preached to save people who believe. God's whole approach is he paid for salvation through Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross to satiate God's wrath and to, to obtain salvation, but it now pleases God to let me benefit from that by joining the church, right? No. I get to benefit from it from, by giving $10,000 a year to, no. I get to benefit by traveling to Mecca, no. How do I get to benefit from Jesus' work? Only one way, and all you can do. I can't do those other things. There's only one thing I can do, and that's I can believe it. And that's all I have to do. God is pleased to give salvation to those who believe what he says. That's something. You talk about a beautiful, 
glorious gospel. A little child can believe. A mentally impaired person can believe. A horrible, terrible sinner who we could never, ever, a murderous person who would kill God's people and a persecute, like Paul, a person who's so wicked on the inside, they feel like nothing, but they can believe. And that's all that God wants us to have to do. And so God is pleased to do it this way. He's pleased by it. Look at this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Part of what God's doing is he's on purpose demonstrating that our independent actions, our independent wisdom and strength are nothing compared to him. He wants us to be embarrassed of ourselves. It's important. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Who's it all about, really? Is this whole salvation thing that Jesus died on the cross, is that about me? Is it about so I get the big party? Is that really who it's about? No. I get to be in the big party, but it's for God's glory. Jesus deserves to save people. And he deserves to be believed in. And so God takes all of these things that are, we think are so great, and he demonstrates yours is nothing. Your righteousness is filthy rags. Your wisdom is foolish. Your strength is weakness. I'm going to nullify that and show it that no one can boast before me. Who's going to say in heaven, God, I am so glad I'm here. It's a good thing you picked me. I'm the best contribution to your team. No one will be able to boast. That's why the Bible makes clear we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone would boast, right? How do you know whether you're trusting your works? If you can boast about it. I got baptized real well. I was a good baptizer. (laughs) No, it don't make a deal, right? You can't boast about it. Baptism doesn't save. So that's another reason God does it this way, so that salvation will be for his honor and glory. No one is going to boast. We're just going to thank him for saving us. And then again, Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that, so here's a good indication. This is a reason, right? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, wisdom <clears throat> excuse me, but on God's power. Amen? I don't want to trust a sophisticated philosophy to get there. Because if I did, it will crumble. In a hard day, in a deep and dark valley, when I can't think straight and I'm sick on my deathbed, who's going to get me through? It's not my philosophy. It's not my ability to think. What if I have dementia? It's God's power. I have to be saved by God, not by human wisdom. I am so grateful. Man, how awful it would be if it depended on how clever I was to organize things. So why does God do it this way? Just to recap. So the cross has its power. That's what the power is. God's pleased to do it this way. It pleases him. He wants to shame human wisdom and power. It's, it's in opposition to him and so that no one may boast. And our faith would rest on God and not on man. Amen? I think it's a great salvation. I think God's wisdom is better than man's. Don't you? 
Even a little baby or a little child, a, a person who hardly understands, can trust and be saved. Okay, last point. What do we do now? So, okay, I'm listening. I hear you, Pastor John. I hear what we're saying from the Bible. All of these verses, I just keep re-showing you the same verses, so you guys have practically got it memorized now, right? <laughs> so what do we do now? Well, a couple of clues from the text. Somehow I think we lost focus again, Joe. There we go. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So I've been, I've been forgiven. I have righteousness before God. I'm being made more and more like Jesus. I'm holy, and I've been bought again. So that's what I've got from Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, what class? Boast in the Lord. So what are the things I'm supposed to do now is boast in the Lord. How do you do that? You say, thanks be to God who saved me. Isn't Jesus awesome? He saved me. Amen? That's what we've been doing all day, I think. And then Paul also said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so one of the things that we need to do is resolve to not try to fix the gospel to make it more palatable to a skeptical world and kind of take the cross out, right? If anything, this should be only the cross. So much pressure. I want, to be, I want to be liked. I want people to think I'm clever and awesome. I want people to think, man, I don't like Jesus much. and that really, But man, that Pastor John down at that church, he explains it so well. I just really think it's cool. That there, there's something about it, the way he loves people. Don't you want that? Don't you want people to think about us that way? But it's not going to solve their problem. I just become a liar. It's Jesus who saves. And it's whenever I'm embarrassed or I think I have to patch it up and make it sound a little more classy, then I'm missing the point. And so I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay? And then He says, I came to you in weakness and with fear and trembling. It's okay for us to be afraid. It's actually the right posture. It's kind of funny for me to think that the Apostle Paul would have been ever either of those two things. He's so powerful. He knows so much. He had the, but he understood where he fit. He's just a sinner. And it's not him telling us. It's not me telling you. It's us learning about Jesus together. Understand? There's no, there's no higher among us. Jesus is the Savior. And so we come with weakness and trembling and we tell the world. So my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, right? Who saves us from sin? The Holy Spirit wakens us up. And he uses us. We get to be part of the process of sharing the word. God values people so much that he lets us be part of it. But the real power is the Spirit so that people's uh, faith will rest on God. So again, what do we do now? Let's boast in the Lord, okay? That means be grateful for salvation. Be thankful for God. And know Jesus and Him crucified. That's our priority. The way you pray in your personal life, your personal, personal worship times, you're, you're thinking about and honoring Jesus as your Savior and how you could have been uh, lost without Him and how your sin is so terrible, all those things. And then we speak with fear and trembling, Right? We're not, we're not the power place. We're the weak one. We're just the channel for God's message 
so that we can demonstrate the Spirit's power. I want the Holy Spirit to save you. Not, I want to save you. I could manipulate you and maybe make you think that something happened here that didn't happen. I could, pre- I could make it real emotional or whatever. I could fabricate effects. But that wouldn't be the Spirit's power. Now, the Spirit might manifest himself in a pretty powerful way, right? Those things could happen. But I want him to do that, not me. <laughs> and so that's where we come from, all right? Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your salvation. It's true, we don't deserve it. But you have, you have done it all. And forgive us for how many times we let our own thinking, our own wisdom, our own sophisticated approach that we think we're the right way to go. Forgive us for how many times we slip back into that thinking. Remind us, thank you for today's reminder that Jesus paid it all, that cross is the power. It's the power for how we got saved, and it's the power for how we can live as believers and put to death the deeds of our sinful nature. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, stand with us as we sing our closing song. Well, an update on Samantha. She's awake and doing fine. They're going to take her to the hospital just in case and uh, make sure she's all right. She didn't. She skipped breakfast. She's been having trouble fainting this week, and so. And uh, she's still out in the north foyer. So try to use this, these doors, right? So don't go out that way. Is that everything? So she's doing okay, but we want to make sure she's all right. Her mom's here and stuff. So and the baby. Somebody's taking the baby. So everybody's covered. So all good. We uh, all depend on God for every breath, amen? And even more so for the forgiveness of sins. What a, if, you, if you don't know that your sins are forgiven, you can. Just trust Jesus. Believe what God says about him, and you too can be saved. Well, thank you again so much for coming. Please stay for our open table. The food's great, and the fellowship is fun. You're dismissed.